It is always a blessing to come and worship together and open God's word. And I gotta say, I, I wasn't allowed to say this while they were here. That was awesome to see our Bethel kids up here this morning. And it's always a joy to see it because you can look at different kids at different stages of the song and see different levels of enthusiasm and like how nervous they are. Because there's some kids, like let, let me tell you, those kids have been practicing that song for, for months and they've been ready and they're like, yes, we're gonna come up and we're gonna show our families. And you have some kids and they, and they get up here and they're like, yep, we're right on it. And they do the actions, they know the words, they sing the songs. Then you have some kids who are just distracted because you know they see you, they see mom, they see dad. And the whole time they're like, hey mom, hi. And then, this is one of my favorites, you have some kids who are just a little put off by how many people are looking at them and the whole song is just, It's my favorite, and, and it's amazing to see because I know when they all go back downstairs, no matter which one of those kids they are, they'll be like, that was awesome! <laughs> so as, as a Bethel Kids leader, seeing the other side of that, let me tell you, that is amazing. And thank you for letting them come up here and show you all their actions and giving them such encouragement because it is amazing for them. Now I wanna ask you this this morning. Where is the best place for you to stay. Where do you go? If you're thinking of going on vacation, how do you decide where you're gonna stay when you get there? And in a bigger question, if you're deciding, you know, maybe I actually have to move my family to a new area, when you get there, how do you decide where you're gonna stay? There's a ton of stuff that you're gonna look for. The community we're going to, is it, is it a good community? Is it a safe community? Is it something that's sustainable? I mean, it's, maybe it's a good community, maybe it's a safe community, but maybe like I just can't really afford to live there. Is it sustainable for me to stay there? The building I'm gonna stay in, is it structurally sound? Am I gonna have to worry about it falling apart or burning down at any, any time? You think of all of these things when you think, okay, where am I going to stay? And you think about the same when you go on vacation. Is this a good deal? Is this worth the money? Is there enough stuff for my young family, for my young kids? And maybe if you don't have young kids, or like, is there not enough stuff so that there won't be any kids there? Because that seems a lot better for me at this point. So you're thinking, where am I going? Where am I staying? See, our family is pretty excited. We don't really go on, on like big family trips, but this year we decided, you know what? It just, it's just kind of the right time for us. We're gonna take a big trip down. We're gonna go down to Florida. We're gonna go to Disney World. And we're really excited about it. And we spent a long time, we spent hours and hours combing through, because I had no idea that Disneyland was this like thing. Where are we gonna stay? What are we gonna do when we get there? What kind of room we're gonna stay in? You know, are we, are we gonna stay in the Star Wars room, which I really wanted to do, but <laughs> one, I got outvoted, two, it doesn't even exist anymore, which is really sad. Are we gonna stay in like just a more grown-up room, which I, I guess we can do? Where, what are we going to do when we get there? What parks are we going to go to see? How are we going to get there? Are we going to fly? That's really expensive. No. Okay, are we going to drive? Are we going to rent a car? What are we going to do? We're thinking of all of these things because we want to make sure wherever I'm staying, whether it's temporary and on a vacation for a couple weeks or whether it's something bigger, if I'm going to move my family to this area, I want to make sure that where I am staying is the best place for me and it's the best place for the ones I love. So how do we figure out the best place to stay? We think about these things, we talk about these factors. Now let me ask you this. If we put that much thought into where we're gonna stay when we go on vacation, 
where we're going to stay when we raise our family, where we're going to stay when we move. How much more should we think about where we are going to stay for all of eternity? It's a much bigger question. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been in the book of Acts, and today we're going to start a new series called All Hail King Jesus, because we're moving towards Easter. And as we move towards Easter, we often get caught up in the glorious reality of Jesus as our Savior, as our atoning sacrifice, as God made flesh for us. And sometimes we can miss the fact that despite all of this, this is all true and it's all amazing, but Jesus is once and forever our King. And so we're going to look at King Jesus over the next few weeks. What type of King He is, what He does for His people. And today, we're going to take a look at what kind of kingdom Jesus brings. Because the kingdom that Jesus brings, the kingdom that he rules, gives us a place to stay for all of eternity, and it gives us the best place to stay for all of eternity. And so today, we're going to look into God's word, and we're going to see some of the kingdom truths about Jesus, our eternal king. And so before we dive in, would you, would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Lord, we pray, first and foremost, that you would be glorified in our time together. I want to come and make much of the name of Jesus. That is what we are here to do. And so, Lord, would you be honored above all else? And as we open your word, I pray that we be attentive to what it says. I pray that through your Holy Spirit, we would understand the lessons it has for us and that we would take them seriously. That we would dive into the word and say, what is this kingdom that Jesus brings and why is it the best place for me to spend eternity? So Lord, I pray that you guide all of our hearts, you would guide the words of my mouth and lead us in your everlasting way. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of John and we're going to be in chapter 18. And as you turn there, I'm going to set the, set the stage, give you a little bit of context for what is going on. We're going to be in John 18, 33 till the end of the chapter. So only about seven verses this morning. But in these seven verses is a conversation between Jesus and, and Pilate, who I'm going to explain in just a couple minutes, about the kingdom of God. And in order to understand the kingdom of God, I believe there's three different people, groups, players in this scene that we really need to understand. So as you turn there, I'm just going to break those down for you. The first is Jesus, unsurprisingly. plays a big role in the text today. At this point in John's gospel, at this point in Jesus' life, he has been going and preaching and teaching, performing miracles and healings and signs and wonders, everything from healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, turning water into wine, and even raising the dead. He's been traveling around Israel doing all of these things, for three years, and all the while proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is here, and I am the king. And in that time, he has also made it clear that as he travels, he will eventually come back to Jerusalem. And when that happens, he will be betrayed, he'll be arrested, and ultimately he'll be put to death. And as he goes, he continues to share his message around the countryside, and eventually, just as he said, he arrives in Jerusalem. And when he gets there, 
He's betrayed by one of his 12 disciples, one of his closest friends. He's arrested by the Jewish authorities, and now he is on trial and about to be murdered. And that is where Jesus is here. And yet he still is proclaiming the kingdom of God, as we'll see. The second major player we need to understand is Pilate. Pilate is the person that Jesus will converse with in our text today. Now, Pilate, otherwise known as Pontius Pilate, is a Roman governor over Judea. At this point in history, Rome has conquered the entire known world, and they send governors wherever they, wherever they need to to keep the peace, keep the people happy, and make sure nobody rebels. And so Pilate's been sent from Rome to watch over the area and ensure that it remains under Roman control. And at first glance, it would seem that the life and death and ministry of Jesus rests in Pilate's decision on whether or not Jesus is guilty. And so Pilate has been told to put Jesus to death, and in our text, he decides to question Jesus himself. So the final player in the text today is the Jewish people who are watching this all unfold. Because the Jewish people are led by the Jewish authorities who have arrested Jesus, and they're the chief priests and the Jewish men and women in attendance. Now, what's really important about them is while they may not be in on the exact conversation we see, they have been hearing and seeing the message and ministry of Jesus for years now. They're very aware of what Jesus is saying to Pilate because it's what he has said all along throughout his ministry. And they have looked at every turn, the Jewish authorities, for a way to destroy Jesus because his ministry and his kingdom and his message didn't align with what they had built up. And so they have finally had the opportunity through one of Jesus' disciples to arrest him and bring him to trial. But the problem is they want to get rid of him and they don't have the power to actually do that. So that's why they've brought him to Pilate. So we have Jesus, we have Pilate, and we have the Jewish onlookers. And so all three of these have a role to play as we understand Christ's kingdom today. And so we're going to jump in John 18, starting in verse 33, as Pilate begins to question Jesus. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it about me? Pilate answered again, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So Pilate reclines, or recedes from the Jewish people to his headquarters, to his private space where he questions Jesus. And he says, is what you're accused of true? Are you the so-called king of the Jews? And Jesus responds to his question in likely a frustrating way for Pilate, but in an unexpected way for us, look what he says. He says, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it about me? In verse 34. See, what Jesus is doing when he's probing this question from Pilate, he's, he's asking Pilate, what are you really asking me? Are you asking me this as Pilate, the Roman governor, or as a representative of the people who are also accusing me? And there's a big difference there. Because if Pilate is coming in asking Jesus as the Roman governor, are you the king of the Jews? He's, he would be asking, are you a political king who's going to try and overthrow Rome? Because Pilate has seen rebellion try and rise up and be squashed. And so when Jesus asked, do you say this of your own accord? Pilate, are you asking me if I'm the political king of the Jews who is going to overthrow Rome? 
Or do others say it about me? Or are you referring to what the Jews are upset with? Because the Jews are upset that he's claiming to be the messianic king of David who will restore Israel and bring the kingdom of God in unexpected ways. So the reason Jesus asked this question is, if Pilate's asking Jesus, are you a rebel against Rome who's going to try and destroy the system that Rome has built up? Or is Pilate unknowingly asking Jesus, are you the messianic king of Israel? the one who will save his people from their sins and proclaim the kingdom of God throughout all of the earth? Because the answer to one is no. Jesus is not a rebel against Rome who's going to start a giant violent revolt in Judea. But the answer to the other is unequivocally yes. Yes, I am the promised king of Israel who will save people from all nations, tribes, and tongues from their sins. And so Jesus asked this, and then Pilate responds, in verse 35, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He's essentially saying to Jesus, no, I'm not asking from myself. Your people turn, them, turn you over. They're the ones who are concerned. If I was concerned you were a, a threat to Rome, I would have dealt with you long, long ago. So Pilate makes it clear. I'm not asking if you're a threat. I'm not asking if you're a rebel who's trying to start a revolt. I'm asking, have you upset these people in the way that they say so? Are you claiming to be their, their messianic king? Even if he doesn't understand it, Pilate is saying, no, I'm not saying are you a threat to Rome. I am saying, are you the king of the Jews according to the scriptures? And Jesus replies, and he understands what Pilate is really asking. And this brings us the first thing that I think we really need to understand about Christ's kingdom and why it's the place where we should spend eternity. And it's this. Christ's kingdom comes differently than the world's. It doesn't come in the same way that the world brings about their kingdoms. Look with me at verse 36. Jesus answered him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Christ's kingdom comes differently than the world's. Jesus' response shows us that sometimes we often, too, misunderstand the way that God's kingdom works because we think that it's got to come about in the same way that we see kingdoms and dynasties built in our world. You know, we often talk about at Christmas the unexpected arrival of Christ, the king who became lowly and despite being worthy of all honor and all glory chose to come in a manger. And then I feel like sometimes we forget that as we watch, Jesus always works in the ways that people wouldn't expect. And it's the same not only with Christ's coming, but the coming of his kingdom. Christ's kingdom comes differently than the world's. But what does he mean when he says this? Well, look again, he says, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from you see, Christ's kingdom is not like the world's because the world's kingdom is built on war. Because if Christ's kingdom were like the world, it would have been built on fighting and violence so that he wouldn't go over to the Jews. Jesus says that if, if my kingdom were like yours, if it comes the same way, it would use the same methods. All I would do is I would exhibit my power over you and forcefully bring my kingdom about. Because the world's kingdoms are built on war. And Jesus knows that Pilate would know this. Pilate is a Roman governor. He's part of the Roman government. 
Pilate has seen kingdoms fall to the hands of war and bloodshed. He knows what it is to wage war and exert power over others because Rome has built the largest empire in the entire world off of war. Pilate knows what it is to conquer and build a kingdom that the world builds. He knows that the kingdoms of this world are built on war. And we know this too. Because if we look around, we see the kingdoms of this world that are tangible, that we can see, are built on war. We see that with political strife around the world, but we also see that in our lives. We see people build their own personal kingdoms off the backs of others, dedicated only to themselves. We see them built off whatever it costs somebody else, I'm going to build myself up. We see them built by waging war on those around them. And the truth is that some of us have built those type of kingdoms. Some of us have built ourselves fortresses or reputations or lifestyles that say, this is about me. And when push comes to shove, if what I want and what I need is on the other side of where you are, then you better watch out. You see, some of us have built those kingdoms and reputations that are all about me and less about you. Some of, sometimes they're built off of our pride because I just want more. And sometimes they're built off of a feeling that we need to protect ourselves. See, if I don't do this, then nobody else is going to look out for me. But if we really evaluate it and think about it, we realize our kingdoms are built off of war. They're built off of conflict. Because when push comes to shove, I'm going to fight for me and you're going to fight for you. But that's not the kingdom of Jesus. That's not what Jesus does. Christ's kingdom is not like the world's. Because the world's kingdoms, the kingdoms that I build on my own, that you build on your own outside of Jesus, will be built on war and on conflict. Me versus you, us versus them. But Christ's kingdom is built on peace. See, if his kingdom is not of this world, not violent, not built off war, it's built off something else. It's built off peace. Jesus is saying, Pilate, you think that I'm a king, and therefore you think that you know what my kingdom would be like. You think that you know what a real kingdom is built on. You think that for me to be the king of the Jews, it means I need to wage a violent war on those who come against me. It means I need to fight, but I don't need to do that because my kingdom isn't like that. Because as much as we think peace in the kingdoms of the world isn't really peace, it's just a lack of conflict at that moment. It just means that I'm not fighting somebody else right now. But if my kingdom is built on war and not like Christ, it means that I need to be building up more and more and just waiting for the next fight. But that's not Christ's kingdom. You know, I, I, I learned that lesson the hard way just recently. I played Risk for the first time. Anyone play Risk here? Anyone played a full game of Risk? I did not. But I learned this, and if anyone, if you've never played Risk and you decide to, if anyone ever tells you that you're at peace, that's not true. You are still at war. I was playing Risk and I was getting a hang of the game, and it's a long game, so it took, it took me a while. And this guy across the table says, you know, we're at peace. Like, I'm not going to attack you. We'll clear the board, and then we'll fight it out. 
And I was like, that's great. So I start moving across the board. I start taking pieces left and right. I'm, you know, I'm just running the game. And then I forgot to secure the border, but it doesn't matter because I'm at peace with that guy. Anyone want to guess what happened next? <laughs> he took like 30 troops and just marched like halfway through all of the properties I owned. And I realized that peace in a kingdom built on war is not peace. It's just waiting for the next fight. But the peace that Jesus brings isn't like that peace. Jesus says in John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give. So let not your hearts be troubled and let them not be afraid. Jesus says, peace in a kingdom built on war is not peace. It's just waiting. But my peace is different. Because the peace and the rest that I bring is the foundation of my kingdom. He says, my peace isn't like the world's. And he knows that this world's kingdoms will never bring true peace. When he continues in John 16, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. See, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, my peace is so much greater because it is greater than the entirety that this world could bring. Jesus says, the peace of my kingdom isn't like anything else. It's something even greater. I am bringing a peace that is even greater than anything else you could imagine. And the writer of this gospel, John, he would later see a full vision of this peaceful kingdom in the book of Revelation, where he writes this. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, the peace of Jesus' kingdom is a peace that passes all understanding because it comes from a place where God himself, the creator of everything, glorious and mighty, comes down and says, I will wipe the tears from your eyes. I will create a kingdom where you're invited, where death itself is no more, where pain and mourning and weeping have all passed away because the peace of God so permeates this kingdom that all is at rest. And so the wars and the violence and the kingdoms of this world have all passed away because God's kingdom has come. That's what Christ's kingdom is built on. And let me ask you this. If we think about the kingdom we want to stay in, the place that I want to spend all of eternity, is that not the kingdom I should pursue? A place where peace rests and reigns and is the foundation of where I am. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding, like nothing we have ever seen, not like the kingdoms of the world, but the peace that God and God alone can bring. Is that not the kingdom I want to see? 
And so the first thing we've seen through Jesus' conversation is that his kingdom is not like this world. It's not built on war. It's not built on violence. It's built on and founded on the peace that he brings. And so that's the first thing. There's a second thing as we continue to look forward. And so as we turn back to our text, Pilate hears about this different type of kingdom, this philosophical kingdom different than anything else he could ever imagine. And Pilate seems to essentially not hear the bulk of what Jesus says. All he hears is the first two words, my kingdom. All he hears is Jesus claiming some type of authority as he continues, because watch what Pilate says next in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. So Pilate doesn't really consider anything else that Jesus has said. He just listens for the first two words, my kingdom. Okay, so you're claiming to be a king. That's all Pilate really cares about. He doesn't necessarily see or care about anything else Jesus has said. But then look at what Jesus says back. And this is where I believe we learn the second thing about Christ's kingdom today. Jesus answered, you say that I am king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The first thing we see is that Christ's kingdom comes differently than the world. The second thing we see is that Christ declaring truth to the world. Christ brings a kingdom that brings peace to a war-torn land, but he also brings a kingdom that brings truth to a world desperately shaken. Christ's kingdom comes declaring truth to the world. Look with me again. So you are a king, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. Pilate, those are your words. You say that I am king, and that's true, but not the one you'd expect. For this is the purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. This is the way that I'm going to establish my kingdom here, not through violence, through peace, and I'm going to establish it by proclaiming truth to the world. How am I going to establish my kingdom? I will bear witness to the truth. And so Christ's kingdom is not only a kingdom of peace, but a kingdom of truth, of the foundational truth behind all of creation. But that begs the question this morning, what is the truth that Jesus brings? When Jesus says, I've come to declare truth, what does he come to declare? What is that truth? Well, the Bible tells us in John 14, 6, out of the mouth of Jesus, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I have come to declare the truth, and I am the truth. I have to come to, to declare me, the king, my kingdom, that is true. And everyone who listens to the truth listens to me because I am the truth. And the truth is that nobody comes back to God but through Jesus. The truth is that Jesus is the way. The truth is that Jesus is the life in God. The beautiful truth of Scripture that Jesus has come to proclaim is that despite the fact that we are completely separated from God because He is holy and we are so not, is that Jesus has come to bring us back to God. He has come to declare His kingdom that says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life that brings you back to what you were created for. 
our relationship with the most high God of all of creation. Christ's kingdom comes to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And this is what he has always done. That's why we have said the Jews have been hearing this kingdom. Because right from the start in Mark 1, the very first thing that Jesus says, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God brings the forgiveness of sins that brings us back to God. The truth of the gospel is that the kingdom is at hand. And when we repent, when we come back to the Lord, admitting our shortcomings, our faults, saying, would you forgive me? He's faithful and he is true. And so when Christ says, nobody comes to the Father except through me, nobody's leaving the Father once they've come. And that truth that is declared to the world, declared to Pilate, declared to the Jews, is now declared to us. That the truth of this world, of our lives, is that we were created by God for relationship with God, but in our sin we separated ourselves from Him, and only Jesus can bring us back. And that is why He came. And let me tell you this, in, in, in a world where truth can be made and broken in a matter of minutes, when I live in a kingdom and when I live in a culture where truth is determined by whoever has the most power and one wrong move can kick me out, the truth of the gospel is desperately needed. Because the truth of the gospel that says, once you come to Jesus, He will never let you go. That's the certainty, that's the truth that I need for a kingdom that I want and need to be a part of. That's the beauty of the truth that Jesus brings. That once we enter His kingdom, once we come to Him, He will never let us go because He is faithful and He is true. So Jesus, in these two short sentences to Pilate, reveal some of the most glorious and comforting truths about his kingdom, that it is completely different than the world's because it's not built off the backs of others. It's built on the peace that Jesus alone brings. It's not come to declare truth that is trivial but everlasting, that invites all of us in. Jesus has revealed the most glorious truth about his kingdom to Pilate, and now Pilate has the burden to respond. And this is where we see the Jewish officials and the Jewish people, that's where they come into the story because they've also been hearing the truth of the kingdom. And now they're burdened with responding. And now, if we know the story, if we know the Eastern narrative, a lot of us will know how they respond. But I think in looking into what John says here, we can see one more truth about Christ's kingdom. One more lesson that we can learn. So starting in verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. 
So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. If we look closely, the final thing that we can see here is that not only does Christ's kingdom come differently than the world's, not only does it come declaring truth that the world desperately needs, but Christ's kingdom comes despite this world. Even if the world and those around us try and ignore the reign of Jesus or kick against the kingdom that He brings, that's not going to stop the work and the reign that He has. Christ's kingdom comes despite this world. You see, Pilate has been dismissive of Jesus' claims at every turn. Are you a king? Well, who's asking, Pilate? Because I want to know more. The people are asking, would you just tell me, or is what they're saying true? Well, my kingdom's not like this world. It's not like what they're thinking. It's not like what you're thinking. Okay, so you have a kingdom that makes you a king, I guess. Yes, but it comes to bear the truth that you need. Pilate says here, what is truth? If we read this in passing, we can think, oh, Pilate's, Pilate's asking more questions about Jesus. He's asking what the truth of the gospel is. Pilate's asking more questions. He's becoming increasingly curious. But that's not necessarily what's happening. What's happening is he's becoming increasingly dismissive of the case because Pilate doesn't care about Christ's kingdom or his message. Pilate cares most about fulfilling his role as governor. He wants to keep the peace. He wants to make sure there's no rebellion. And he doesn't want to kill any innocent people. So he's keeping the peace by questioning Jesus. He's making sure there's no rebellion by questioning Jesus. And now he's just trying to see if Jesus is worthy of death. And he essentially decides, no. Pilate decides that whatever kingship Jesus wants to talk about with all this peace and difference and and truth, it's, it's not enough to condemn him to death. So he returns to the Jewish people and says, I find no guilt in him. But it is not as if he cares enough about Jesus' innocence to really spare him what the Jewish people want. Because look what he says. You have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Pilate has this apathy towards Jesus. He doesn't really make a difference one way or the other. Leads him to do his best to people please with the Jews by saying, I don't think he needs to die. But if you think, I got to release one person, so who do you want? I don't think it's this guy, so should I not release him? And the, and the people see, say, no. Pilate's probably hoping that they'd let Jesus go because Pilate thinks he's innocent, but essentially, Pilate doesn't feel strongly enough one way or the other to say yes or no. He thinks they should release Jesus on principle of tradition, if not on his innocence. And this is where the Jewish people make the biggest move of the text today. They've heard the message of Jesus. They've tried him and they want him gone. And being given one last opportunity, the people continue to rebel against Jesus. And they would rather a man named Barabbas be set free. And they condemn the king of eternity to die. They see Jesus in front of them and they yet again decide to reject and rebel against him. The man they chose to free, Barabbas. In verse 40 it says, now Barabbas was a robber. Sorry. 
This isn't the greatest translation of the word in the original Greek language. He's a robber, yes, he probably stole. But we know much more about Barabbas from the Greek word and also the other Gospels. He's a robber, but he's also a rebel against Rome. He's been the dangerous one to try and overthrow the government. In Matthew, he's described as a notorious prisoner. In Mark and Luke, he is a murderer. The irony of the Jewish people's response is that they traded a king of peace and truth for a man filled with malice and war. That's who Barabbas is, and he would be just as dangerous when he gets out. And so we see in their responses that Pilate doesn't care, and the Jewish people just want Jesus dead. We see apathy from Pilate, and we see resentment from the Jews. And if we look around, we see both of these responses today. Apathy and resentment. I don't care, and I don't want to know. We share our faith with those around us. We share the peace and the trust that we have in Jesus, the glorious kingdom that he brings, the good news of the gospel, and we're met with, eh, cool, I'm glad that works for you. It's not for me. I don't really care. And sometimes, we continue to share our faith, and the response we get is hostile. No, I don't want to know. Stop talking to me about, like, let it be your own and just leave me alone. And so we see these two things in our world today, and we see them here. But the truth of the Bible is that those things don't stop the kingdom of Jesus. Those things won't stop the King eternal. One New Testament scholar by the name of Gary Burge, he writes in his commentary on John that the message of this story, what this text is supposed to point us to when we understand the story of the Bible, is that despite this being the darkest hour in human history, where the King of glory is condemned to die on a criminal's cross. The truth of the story is that despite this being the darkest hour, this is yet the hour of glory. Because no matter what Pilate did, no matter how much he didn't care, no matter what the Jews did, no matter how much they wanted him gone, that could not stop the crowning Jesus who would raise again from the grave three days later to say, I am the King. This is the hour of glory because this is the hour in which all of our sin was done and dealt with on the cross. You see, despite Pilate's apathy, despite the Jewish rebellion, Jesus brings his kingdom because he will willingly go and die on the cross for his people. And because he lays his life down, he can pick it up again. And so you see, when we look at Easter we often think the tragedy of Easter is fully encapsulated in the fact that Jesus died undeservedly. And that is true. That is a tragedy that people chose to look at the King of glory, the King of heaven, and say, I don't want that. In fact, I want him gone so bad that I will murder him. But the tragedy of Easter continues because we see here 
It's not that Jesus was just betrayed. It's not just that he was beaten. It's not just that he was crucified. It was that he was ignored at every turn. The tragedy of Easter that we see here today is that Pilate and the Jewish people have every chance to submit to this eternal king, come into this kingdom that offers them peace and joy and truth forevermore, and they choose not to. And so this begs the question for us today. Am I going to listen to truth? Or am I going to get caught up in my own kingdom? The Jews were much more concerned with the systems that they had built, the ways they thought it would work. Pilate was way more concerned with Rome and keeping the peace in his role there that he missed out on the truth of the gospel. Am I going to trust the words of Jesus, the King of eternity, the King of heaven, or am I going to continue to go my own way? You know, you and I were once Pilate. We were once the Jewish people. At one point in our lives, we were either apathetic We weren't sold on the kingdom of God. At one point in our lives, maybe some of us were like the Jews, quite opposed to the kingdom of God. I hear that, and I don't want it, but the beauty of Jesus is that he picked me out of that, and he never gave up on me. And so I decide now to listen to truth and to follow after him. And you see, it's so easy to think that we should go back to our old ways of doing things once we hear the, thing, the truth of the gospel and we think that now I've heard it, now I've accepted it, now I've graduated from it, this is my life now. No, 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 the gospel is not something I graduate from. The gospel is something that I need to know every single day because the truth of the gospel permeates every aspect of my life. Because once I recognize the rightful eternal King Jesus whose kingdom doesn't come the same way the world does, whose kingdom comes to bring me peace, whose kingdom comes by declaring truth, and whose kingdom comes inevitably, despite whatever I try to do, once I recognize that good and gracious king, why would I ever go back to a kingdom that I've built on my own? Feeble, fearful, and just waiting for the next fight. Am I going to listen to truth or get caught up in my own kingdom? Am I going to submit to the eternal king? Let me ask you one more question this morning, Bethel. Did Jesus' kingship, did his authority over all creation rest on whether or not Pilate and the Jews accepted him? No. Jesus was once forever and always the king of creation. Now let me ask you this. Does whether or not you think Jesus is your king change whether or not he really is? No. He is the king of creation and that includes me and that includes you. You see, we get caught up using this language in our circles where we say, I am deciding to make Jesus the king of my life. And I'm I'm not saying we shouldn't use that. I'm not saying we shouldn't ask people to make that decision. Absolutely. We need to be reminded 
I don't make Jesus the king of anything. He's already the king of everything. And so when I decide to follow Jesus, I don't crown him king. He's already crowned. What I do is I accept that I'm supposed to follow this rightful king. Because he's already our king. He's already the king of creation, including me, including you, including those around you who you think would never submit to Jesus. He's already their king. They just need to realize it. So when we decide to follow Jesus, we decide to follow the rightful king. All we do is we acknowledge, Jesus, you are the king of creation, and I haven't treated you as such. I need your forgiveness, and I need you to help me follow you. If you're here today and you haven't come to a place where you've understood that reality, today is the day. Come to the King who brings peace, who brings truth. Come to the King of all creation and rest in His love for you that caused Him, despite being worthy of all honor and all glory and all creation, to come down, live the life you couldn't live, die the death that you couldn't die, to bring you into His kingdom to forgive you of the ways that you have lived like he is not the rightful king. Would you come and join us as we journey towards Easter and say, all hail our King Jesus. You see, all these stories of Jesus' kingship and glory that we're going to see over the next few weeks, they all lead to Jesus' crowning coronation. But not one like the world's, not one filled with honor and glory and robes, one where he's beaten and broken, crowned not with a crown of jewels, but with a crown of thorns, where he brings about his kingdom by sacrificing his life in our stead, in my stead. And as the king of eternity hangs on a cross of a criminal with, hand, with nails in his hands and with his feet, he says, it is finished. And he tears the veil to open the floodgates to his kingdom to all who would come to him, who desire peace and would accept the truth of the gospel. And on the third day, this is why Jesus' kingdom is, ine Jesus kingdom is inevitable. Because on the third day, he rises again to say, the plague that has felled every king and every kingdom in human history has no hold on me because death itself has been overcome by our king, Jesus. Death itself retains no hold on him. Now, I don't know about you, but in my opinion, that is a king worthy of all my devotion, of all my life, of all my worship, and of all my service. That is a king who brings the kingdom that I want to be a part of. And if that king is not worthy of that, then there is no king who you would follow. He is the only one worthy of everything. The only one worthy of anything. And so if you're here today and you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, I want to invite you, today is the day. And if you're here and you haven't made that commitment and, and you're not ready, thank you for being here today. And please, come back next week and come back the week after. Week after week, keep coming and hearing the message of the gospel until you're prompted to say, 
No, he is my king. Because as we journey towards Easter, we're going to continue to see that not only does he bring this kingdom that is worthy of losing everything to join, he is also a king worth following. And for our Bethel family today, for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus and said, now he is the eternal king that I am going to follow. As we hold to the truth of Jesus' kingdom, the peace that he brings, the truth that he brings, and the inevitability of his reign, let us come and proclaim that together with the communion table. We take communion every week as a church, or most weeks as a church, to remind one another of the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus that would cover us as we enter his kingdom.